Let's just pray. God, we are just so, so grateful that we can gather and freely just sing praises to you. Thank you, Lord, that when we open the gates to our hearts, to our minds, to our spirits, that you come in. I just get a sense this morning that there's a few that, whether it be through difficult circumstance, whether it be through past hurt, whether it be for whatever reason, that the the, there's a desire to keep the gate closed a bit, to keep God at an arm's, at an arm's distance. And I said it's very strongly that God's saying, trust me, open it up. My glory brings peace, brings love, brings acceptance, brings joy. Brings correction, <laughs> brings blessing and brings grace. Receive that today. Brings healing. God, thank you that we can receive those things freely, without merit, <laughs> because of just who you are. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Wow. We should like just keep worshiping for another half hour, right? Yeah. Exactly. Some of you are like, oh, I'd have to listen to him now? Yeah. Sorry. Oh. Well, good morning, church. It is wonderful to be with you today. I have to be honest, I'm quite excited. A little bit nervous. Four months is a long time. Good morning to you online as well. Uh, you can comment in the, in the comments there, but I'm just thrilled that you're worshiping with us today. All right. I want you to know that I did have an amazing sabbatical, um, and I think two things really made it wildly successful. First, I had a friend who's a sabbatical coach who met with me monthly to kind of just give me the rails to ride on in my journey. Secondly, I had a, a mentor who led me in spiritual prayer. He simply helped me hear Jesus' voice more clearly and powerfully than I have in some time. And it was awesome. 
The question I've been asked most in the last few weeks is, are you rested? Was it restful? The answer is a resounding yes, but not because I sat around a lot, <laughs> but because life feels more centered, more focused on Jesus right now. As my spiritual coach likes to say, John, your spiritual RPMs are at a much healthier pace, which is a good thing. On sabbatical, a couple things that were very affirmed were my call to ministry, my call to Redeemer for this next season. So I look forward to what God has for us. I wholeheartedly believe that he has fancy plans for us as a church and for you individually as we continue to grow in devotion towards him and love towards each other. And I'm grateful that I get to do that with all of you. I bopped my head in the service a few weeks ago just to say hi. I shared that there's a couple of minor details changing in my life. The first is that in two days on Tuesday of 2-22-22, my daughter is supposed to be delivering grandchild number one. Yeah. Appreciate your prayers in that. Could come on that day. Who knows? Secondly, uh, big news is that after being a widower for eight years, uh, I got engaged on my sabbatical, and I'm, getting, and I'm getting married on March 13th. Some of you are like, my gosh, that's quick. I'm like, well, we've been dating for a few years. We're just going to have a simple service with us and the kids. It'll be wonderful. Um, as I said, my sabbatical was awesome. The start was a tad shaky. <laughs> on Friday, October 1, I went to the gym early in the morning. I'm driving home all that mile and a half, and I literally am saying, God, this is day one of my sabbatical. I look forward to the journey we have together. Kid you not, 30 seconds later, I get a phone call. It's my girlfriend, now my fiance, crying uncontrollably through her tears. I hear that her father has had a heart attack and passed away that morning. So our plan was that weekend to get ready for this 18-day journey around the Mediterranean to follow in the footsteps of Paul's missionary journeys. Instead, we flew through some clothes in a bag and drove three and a half hours south to be with family. And on Monday, instead of flying to Istanbul, Turkey to meet up with the team to then go on to Hatay, um, I was performing a, or officiating at a funeral. It's a big change. On Saturday of that weekend, I began the process of changing our flights. You know how that went, perfectly smooth. <laughs> I found that there was a flight being offered 24 hours later, that same flight on Tuesday versus Monday. We had a little window of time to meet up with the team. Things looked promising. We got to the airport early on Tuesday, sat down, took a deep breath, took a selfie, and then all of a sudden heard that our flight has been delayed six hours because, kid you not, the plane on the way from Atlanta to Minneapolis got struck by lightning. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. So that's what happens. So then I find that flight and I, I we had gotten tickets for this flight round trip for 900 bucks, which was phenomenal. And the person on the other end just said simply, oh, we can make that happen for tomorrow. You just have to pay the difference in the, t in the current ticket price. Remind you, two days before we leave. They said, I said, oh, great, what's that, what's that increase? And they said, for the two of you, just over $6,400. Oh! I was like, well, that's not going to cut it. First time I got a chance to see God move, though. The person from Delta was very pleasant. But when going round and round, got no different response, I said, I need to speak with your supervisor. And then she said, you're talking to her. I went, oh, crud. <laughs> I'm praying for God to intervene, and in my 
I thought gentlest but from his voice, I simply said, basically you're telling me that my girlfriend has to choose between attending her own father's funeral or missing the trip of a lifetime. Phone went silent. My first thought was, ooh, you blew it there, John. She comes back on after a few moments, and all of a sudden, through tears, I hear, I missed my father's funeral 10 years ago. I regret it every single day. Hold on. Sure. 15 minutes go by. I thought, well, she's going to just bail on me, and I got to call back. She gets back on and says, I can change your tickets for tomorrow. There's a small change fee. I said, what's that change fee? She said, $75 each. I went, sold. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. It was awesome. It was great. Well, we then had not only that six-hour delay, which caused us to miss the connection, which caused us to have a 13-hour layover, which meant there were other flight delays, multiple full-on sprints through airports. We were up for almost 56 hours straight, but we connected with our team. Travel at times was a bit of a nightmare. The trip, amazing. That's what you need to know. Brings us to today. For the next three weeks, we're going to journey with Paul as he journeyed on his three missionary journeys. And we're going to see how did Paul get to a place in his life where he could say these following words. Follow me as I follow Christ. I made sure to put Paul up there on that just because (laughs) I don't have the chutzpah or the guts or the swag. My son's now rolling his eyes to say that. But it's Paul's words. And how did he get to that place in his life where he could say, follow me as I follow Christ? Today we're going to look at that first missionary journey to Antioch, where that first Jesus community began. We first hear of Saul in Acts 7. There's the stoning of the Stephen, who becomes the first martyr for the faith. And it says, the witnesses came and laid their clothes at a young man named Saul. And Saul was the one who took legal responsibility for the stoning of Stephen. Saul at this time was a zealous persecutor of those who followed Jesus. He was a Pharisee. He was born in Tarsus to a well-off and devout Jewish family who also had Roman citizenship. From about the age of 12, he was educated in Jerusalem at the feet of the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. And to say Paul was zealous would be an understatement. Saul sought out those who were a part of the way, as it was called back then, so that he could because he thought they were sacrilegious sinners and needed punishment even unto death. And on one day, you know the story, I won't go into it long, but Saul is on his way to Damascus. He has this encounter with Jesus. He sees this flash of light. He's knocked to the ground. He hears a voice from heaven, and he finds out that it's Jesus who's speaking to him, the very person that he's persecuting, a little nerve-wracking. He's blind from the encounter for three days. After a little bit of pushback, Ananias obeys God and goes and lays hands on him. Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit, scales fall from his eyes, his sight's restored, he's baptized. Just a normal conversion. (laughs) This experience, though, fundamentally alters Paul. It redefines his life mission. By his conversion, he becomes, he goes from being an enemy of the church to its ally. And he started down this pathway to become one of the greatest leaders we know in the church. And when you read the story, it seems so simple, it seems so smooth, it seems so like God. But of course, when you dig a little deeper, things aren't quite as smooth as they seem. In Acts 9, after his conversion, in verse 20, it says this, Immediately, Paul began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? 
And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priest? He's sharing this transformational good news, and the disciples don't believe him. I mean, think about it. Saul goes from arresting Christians to calling himself one of them. I mean, if this were happening today, would you be just willing to accept him? Wouldn't part of you think, wait, maybe this is a trick to get us arrested and killed? Would you hesitate just a little bit before you introduce them to your family and friends? <laughs> In Acts 9, verse 22, it says Paul's preaching was so powerful that the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. That all sounds good. He is so persuasive. He is so intellectually informed that they can't refute him. So you think, okay, how do they respond? In verse 23, it says this. So they plotted together to kill him. Ooh, not the response you're looking for. Paul had met and encountered Jesus, but he was still Paul. Paul, at this point in his life, was an arrogant, pushy, argumentative, brilliantly smart man. He escapes from Damascus, flees to Jerusalem, meets with the believers there, and in verse 26 it says what? They were all afraid of him. They're not convinced that he's truly a disciple. But then enters Barnabas for the first time. Well, actually second, but we won't go in the first one. And Barnabas tells the apostles how Saul had seen the Lord and how what the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he fearlessly preached that Jesus is the Son of God. What a risk Barnabas took. I mean, if Paul was faking it, he just delivered the apostles into the hands of a killer. But Barnabas trusted Saul's experience. He put his own reputation on the line and believed in Saul when nobody else did. Paul then continues in Jerusalem to preach boldly that Jesus is the Christ, and the response is a resounding, they wanted to murder him. When the believers saw how they were responding to Paul's message, they took him to Caesarea and sent him home to Tarsus. And then it says in the scriptures that there was peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Ouch, if you're Paul. Hey, you know what? If you just get out of here, there'll be great peace. Paul has this encounter with Jesus, but his overzealous, in-your-face, I'm going to prove you wrong approach didn't work. He was doing it in his own strength and his own wisdom. On the road to the Damascus, the truth of Jesus had been revealed to him, but the way of Jesus had not set in yet. And the result was a lot of preaching and very little fruit. The main result was that people hated him and wanted him killed. It happened in Damascus, Arabia, Jerusalem, so his disciples, or the disciples, sent him home. A couple of chapters later, in Acts 11, Dr. Luke tells about how Barnabas goes to get Paul to bring him to this new church in Antioch. And when you read the Bible, like I have many times in that spot, I sat there thinking, okay, it's two chapters later. What is that, two weeks? Three weeks? You know, maybe Paul got a little, you know, humble come to Jesus moment, and they went to go get him. One of the first things that blew me, away, blew me away on the trip was that little time at home in Tarsus, 10 plus years. 10 years. So I'm sitting there going, wait a second, what happened in 10 years? Well, according to tradition and some other writings that are not in the Bible, 
it says that Paul was rejected in his family in Tarsus because he's now following the way. He was divorced by his wife. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. He was beaten with 39 lashes, and he was living in a cave outside of Tarsus. Again, not in the scriptures, but from some of the writings in Acts and later in Paul's writings, we know pretty clearly that during this time, Paul is a broken, lonely man. And in chapter 11, when we pick up the story again, go back just a bit, after the stoning of Stephen, the apostles all scattered. Some of them went to Antioch. Some of the believers who went there not only shared the good news with Jews, they shared it with Gentiles as well. And when they shared it, it says in 1119 that the power of the Lord was with them. And a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw his, this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy. And he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas. This amazing man sees what's happening in this church, and he remembers the story of Saul, the one he stood up for, and how Saul was told that he was going to preach the good news to whom? The Gentiles. And so when Barnabas sees this happening in Antioch, he's like, I got to go get Saul. He goes and gets him, and he invites him back to Antioch. And the impact that Barnabas had on Saul's life is amazing. I mean, we call that Paul's first missionary journey. But in reality, it's Barnabas' missionary journey. Paul got invited along for the ride. And it was Barnabas who included Paul. It was Barnabas who made him feel like he was a part of this new community. They called it an oikos back then. It was Barnabas that let Paul teach and lead It was Barnabas who helped Paul not only learn the truth of Jesus, but the way of Jesus, that you can become a part of this community, incredibly diverse community. It didn't matter about race or religion or or any of that stuff, socioeconomic stuff. This community in Antioch that's forming, and it was there that Barnabas learned not just the truth about Jesus, but how to walk in a body that encourages each other challenges each other, loves each other the way Jesus did. It was Barnabas that invited Paul to live out Acts 1.8, where they would bring the good news to the ends of the earth. Barnabas is the one who disciples Paul. Without Barnabas, I don't think we'd have Paul. He might still be stuck in a cave outside of Tarsus, or all of the New Testament that was written by Paul. Barnabas was the encourager. His name literally means son of encouragement. Barnabas was always looking up for the underdog. He's always looking for the good in people. How many of you have Barnabas in your life? I hope you have. I've had many of them. Early in life, my mother was my Barnabas. Some people are good at like pushing you, prompting you. A Barnabas is an encourager, is one who propels you propels you. And when I was young, my mother was one who propelled me. 
When I was young and playing sports, my coaches propelled me to be better in that sport. When as a teen, I, I was part of the, the group that went to Faith Haven, and my counselors and small group leaders propelled me in my young faith. When I went to discipleship training school, I had a, a, a mentor who propelled me into missions. I have a bunch of Barnabases that have encouraged me. My soon-to-be wife, Weather, Heather, Weather, my soon-to-be wife, Heather, I'll get her name right, propels me. She encourages me. She listens to me when I'm down. And if you know Heather, she's not afraid to tell me where she thinks I've missed it, which if you know me is a really good thing. Now that my kids are going, my, bro- my daughter who's gonna become a mom in a couple of days propels me. My son, as he takes on new challenges in college, propels me. We all need a Barnabas in our lives. Some of you might think, oh, me and God, we got this. I'll just keep my faith private. Yeah, look where that led Paul. <laughs> Many of you can probably relate to this. Life can be pretty discouraging, right? I mean, look at the last couple of years. But it's even more discouraging when you're alone during those discouraging times of life. That is hard. One of the most difficult things that I experienced on my sabbatical was an accident that my brother Steve had back on Thanksgiving weekend. Steve, my brother, is almost a decade older. Yes, he has more hair. Yes, he's in better shape. Yes, he's taller, all that stuff. One of my brother's passions is cycling. On the road or on the trail, he likes to bike. He and his wife do it together. And last Thanksgiving weekend, on that last really warm day we had before winter hit, he had an accident. Doctor said, pretty much a miracle that he didn't just snap his neck and die. He landed right here. Went off at unmarked cliff. He's been paralyzed from the neck down. Good things are happening. Legs are starting to move. Shoulders can move a little bit. He's working his tail off. So join me in praying for him, because if he can get the arms and hands back online, everything changes. I go there frequently just to encourage. Talk to him on the phone and say, hey, what are you hungry for? Whatever it is, I go pick it up and we, we eat. Last time it was lemon meringue pie from Byerly's. So I got lemon meringue pie from Byerly's. I'll bring him whatever he's craving. We have these most amazing conversations, deeper than we've ever had in our life. I ask him how he's doing physically and emotionally and spiritually. And spiritually hasn't been a normal part of our conversations. One of my favorite moments is, is I will take time and pray for him. And he looks forward to it. And together we sense the presence and the peace of God even in the midst of this difficult time. I go to encourage him and I drive away and say, God, you're so good, I'm encouraged. I just got a text last week from his wife saying, you know, I've been wanting to connect deeper in my faith for some time, and even in the midst of this tragedy, I, I have this joy that I can't explain. I see God moving. <laughs> Friends, we all need Barnabases in our life. We need Barnabases in our church. People that go beyond saying hello, which is a good thing, but someone who comes alongside when you're feeling lonely or discouraged or beat up. Will you be a Barnabas to them? The bedrock of Barnabas' life and faith as you study him is his ability to encourage. 
and the bedrock of our church must be that we encourage one another. Now, I know most of you in this room and online love Jesus, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm thrilled with the stories that I've heard when I was gone about the amazing thing God's doing in your life. I love hearing from people say, Redeemer's such a friendly place. I've found friends. I've connected. I've been encouraged. But there's so much more we can do in that area, right? I want to leave you today with just a few super practical thoughts about how you can become a Barnabas to someone. How you can do that. First of all, pray about it. For the past few weeks, I've been preparing for this message sermon series, and I've been at home, and in my morning time with God, I've been saying, God, who can I encourage today? You want to know something amazing? He's answered me every single time I've asked. <laughs> he loves to answer that. And a name pops into my head, and I shoot off a text, or I say a prayer, or I make a phone call, and it's been just amazing to see God just encourage just this last week, there's a couple of people, and I felt like as I prayed for them, God gave me a specific phrase. They were different, and I just said, hey, as I prayed for you today, I got this phrase. Get a text back, oh my, <laughs> did I need to hear that right now? Sounds like God, doesn't it? Pray about it. Pray about it. Secondly, be a positive encourager. <laughs> Sounds kind of obvious. Positive and encouraging seem like they go hand in hand, but it is so easy to find the faults in others, just like it is in ourselves, right? Be a positive encourager. Barnabas throughout his life was a positive encourager to Paul, so that Paul got to the place where he writes this in Ephesians 4, be humble and gentle, patient with each other. Doesn't sound like the first Paul we saw. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Try with all your might to be a positive encourager. I think when you focus on someone's weakness, it's called hypocrisy. When you focus on someone's sin, it's called pride. But when you focus on what God's doing, it's like that's being a Barnabas. Barnabas could have looked at Paul like the first disciples did and said, do you know what he did? I mean, he's killed more Christians than more that belong to the way than anybody else we've ever heard of. They could have looked at the baggage from his past but instead, they look for the positive. It's there. Greatest hockey player that ever lived is Wayne Gretzky. If you take away all the goals that Wayne Gretzky scored in his NHL career, he still has twice as many points as the next closest person. Why? Because of the thousands of assists he has. And his famous line is when he's asked about it, how are you so good at assisting others in their goals? And he said simply this, he said, I don't pass the puck to where they are, I pass it to where they're going to be. In the same way, don't focus on somebody where they're at, focus on where God wants them to be. I mean, when we look at Christ on the cross, did he focus on all of the sin, past, present, and future that he carried on himself? For all of us? No. Instead, he focused on the potential of saving humanity from hell. And when the nails are pounded into his hands and feet, he saw the potential of you and me. There's potential in every person you know. Be a positive encourager. 
Don't see them where they are. See them where God has got them going and call them there. And then lastly, be a persistent encourager. Hebrews 10, 25 says this, encourage and warn each other, especially now that the day of his coming back again is drawing near. Be a persistent encourager. Don't just do it once. Like I said, when you look at Paul and Barnabas's life, Barnabas was there for Paul around turn after turn after turn. Even when they had a falling out, they end up being reconciled to each other. And so don't just encourage somebody once. Do it repeatedly. Do it over and over again. I got an email this last week. It simply says this, hi Pastor John, you might not remember me, but it's been many years. I knew you as the associate pastor, so congratulations on your promotion, well deserved. He said, uh, years ago, my soul was searching. I was invited to the Alpha class to truly understand and examine the Christian message. In the process, I shed my agnostic, atheistic beliefs. You also gave me a Bible with an inscription from you. I have it in front of me right now as I read this. While it's been many years that we've been in our new locale, I think fondly back at my time at Redeemer. Fond memories of good people. It should be noted that my first visit to Redeemer, well before Alpha, was when I met some friends there for a Ludafis dinner in the basement. Quite the beginning. Funny the mysterious ways Redeemer has touched our lives. Yeah, through a Ludafis dinner. Anyway, I'm in the middle of reading Max Lucado's book, When Christ Comes, and felt to reach out to you and just say thanks. Not only for the beautiful Bible, but for the fellowship and peace I found at Redeemer. Hope you're doing well and enjoying this amazing life God has given us. Does that fill my spirit? To know that I had just a small part to play in that person, being in the place where they are today, from this discouraged agnostic to this very positive, hopeful man, describing life as amazing, that God has given him. First Thessalonians 5.11 reads this. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. Church, my invitation to you today is a simple one. I think God's calling all of us to be more prayerful, more positive, more persistent encouragers. And so when I close in prayer, I want you to simply to ask God, who do you want me to encourage today? And then I want you to do what he lays on your heart because he's going to answer it. And then secondly, on the way out, look for somebody that you can encourage, that you can just build up before you even leave these walls. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for the Apostle Paul. I'm so grateful for what he's brought to this church. But Lord, he wouldn't be who he was without Barnabas, who sought him out, especially when he was discouraged. Lord, we live in a world that is divisive, discouraging, sarcastic, challenging. I think... I can't think of a greater time where more people have felt alone. Lord, help us to be those encouragers, those ones who come alongside, those ones who see them not for who they are right at that moment, but for who God wants them to be. 
Lord, that's what you can do. You are amazing like that. Speak to our hearts now, Holy Spirit. Who do you want us to encourage today? And then help us to be obedient in Jesus' name. Amen.
Will cry, these bones will sing. 